I hope that as we've been going through this great book of the Bible that the God has taught you. And let me also uh, make a slight defense or, or a small defense for the kind of preaching that we do here at Windsor Christian Fellowship. Did you hear the passage as Chris was reading it? Uh, not an easy passage of Scripture, but since we purposefully go through the books of the Bible, chunk by chunk by chunk, um, it forces us to deal with a passage like this. Because I can promise you that if I were just cherry-picking passages throughout the week, every week we didn't really know what was coming next, I was just going to pick, I would pick John 3.16, I would pick God is love, I would pick, but come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We have these different phrases that we use sometimes in regard to money. A phrase like, money talks. And money does talk, doesn't it? Money is persuasive. I used to have a boss when I was a a teenager that would grow frustrated with me as a teenager trying to work for him. And I would come to him and say something like, hey, I I can't do this, I can't move this rock, I can't take this tire off, whatever it is. And he would say something like, If there were a $100 bill underneath that rock, you would be able to move it. And that's because money talks. Money is persuasive. Money is a great motivator. Or there's another idiom that we often use, and that's follow the money. If you want to trace a trail of why something happened the way it did, where this corruption came from in the certain circumstance, follow the money. And it will often bring you to the culprit or the root of the issue. And in this morning's passage, James specifically addresses those who have heard the voices of money. They have been seduced by the whispers of this money talking to them, and they have embraced money as their God. They have embraced treasures as their God. They have embraced even something like garments, clothes, as their God, And when we follow the money in this passage, we see that the money leads us to the scandal that rich people in this time period and every time period were oppressing the poor. And what James does this morning is he effectively channels once again his Old Testament prophet. He is very prophetic. He is very rugged in the way that he makes some of these addresses, like Isaiah or Ezekiel that would call out the sins of the people, walking through the nation, as it were, and calling people out for their sin, like a John the Baptist or like a Jesus, calling people out. Jesus, you remember when he was talking about the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. Or the scribes and the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. This is very Old Testament prophet-like. And James begins, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. You can already tell how uplifting this sermon is going to be this morning, right? Come, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. This passage is certainly not, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. This is a message that says, Jesus can't stand what you're doing, and he is going to open a can of judgment on you. There's been a lot of discussion on the spiritual condition of these rich people that are being discussed this morning. Are they Christ-following rich people that just severely need a kick in the pants? 
these oppressive people that, that need to be woken up, but, but they are Christians? Or are they not Christians? Are they unsaved rich people? Many commentators have said James is talking about rich people that are not a part of the New Covenant Church who are oppressing poor people who are a part of the church. And I tend to agree with them. So rich people who are not followers of Jesus are oppressing people who are followers of Jesus. And James is addressing this of what it sounds Obvious and widespread issue. You remember that James is writing to the church that has spread. These, these brothers and sisters that were being persecuted. And so this letter would have been making its rotations. And so apparently there is this struggle that is going on throughout the area. That they are all, these persecuted brothers and sisters, they are being persecuted from the hands of the rich people. Probably wealthy Jews. So the, those who used to be in covenant with God, very wealthy some of them are now persecuting the new covenant people of God. And it's apparent that James has in mind those who are, are Christians who are being persecuted, these poor ones, these scattered persecuted, persecuted brothers and sisters who really didn't have two nickels to rub together, and they were being oppressed by the wealthy of the day. Now the temptation for us this morning is going gonna, is gonna to be to feel a little distant from this passage. We're going to feel distant because we don't often consider ourselves to be those who are oppressed. And we don't often consider ourselves as oppressing people in terms of finances and power and so forth. So it's very easy for us to detach a little bit and to say, well, I'm not being oppressed and I'm not doing any oppressing. But my prayer this morning is that God would feed us from this text regardless, and apply it in a unique way that only he can do, and in some ways, maybe prepare us for the potential of oppression. And this morning, I just have a very simple breakdown from this text, and it's on the back of your bulletin this morning. Three main headings. The ones oppressing God's people, the ones being oppressed, and the one deliverer of the oppressed. So first, the oppressors of God's people. Look at uh, verse 1 with me in James chapter 5 again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. As I had stated a few sermons ago, some sermons ago, in regard to our own wealth, there is little doubt that James would look at us in central Maine as incredibly wealthy. Now, we don't often think of central Maine being a very ritzy area, do we? I mean, if we're going to talk about wealth in Maine, we usually look more toward the coast, south coast area. But if I were to ask you to describe a rich person to me, how would you describe them? You probably would not begin by describing yourself and what you have. Or how many ones plus zeros in your own bank account. You would probably go external, wouldn't you? you would start describing other p- 
people. No doubt, when you think of a rich person, we think of somebody with beautiful and brand new cars. We think of somebody with a nice house with copper gutters. Or we would think of athletes. Or we would think of a movie star. Or people like the owners of Amazon and Microsoft and so forth. We think of people who have boats and all kinds of recreational vehicles and jewelry and extra houses and expensive clothes. And it's fairly easy for us to think about rich people and point outward and to paint a picture of what they have usually being all of the stuff that we don't have. But the mere fact that we have gold necklaces and gold rings on our hands or a closet full of clothes or a bunch of shoes, a couple of vehicles, three square meals a day, a house with heat, This speaks to incredible wealth, especially to somebody like James. Because you can clearly hear in this passage the kind of person that James has in mind. When James thinks of a wealthy person, he describes for us what a wealthy person is to him. You see it sprinkled throughout the passage in verse 2. They have riches. They have garments. Verse 3, they have gold and silver. They have treasures. Verse 4, they have people working for them. They have land to be worked. They have food that has been harvested. Verse 5, they have luxury. They live in luxury. Verse 5 again, they are self-indulgent. So look, all of these things that he's listing are things that you might not classify your belongings as, but they certainly are. All of you have treasure of some kind. All of you have some money. Some of you have plenty of land to be worked. Some of you do harvest food off of your land. And certainly, for the most majority of us here, we all live in luxury. We all live self-indulgently. And so you see what James considers to be wealth. Would you not say that the average American, middle-class American, fits into this category of wealth? Would not the average lower-class American fit into what James thinks of with wealth? Riches, garments, gold, silver. Some people have people working for them. Some of you do have that land that can be worked, harvested for profit and so forth, luxury, self-indulgence. That's our average citizen. Most of us can check off at least a few of these. And this isn't a sermon that's going to tell you how wicked it is to have money. Because the Bible never says that it's wicked to have money. The Bible never says it's wicked to own things or that it's wicked to have treasures as possessions and so forth. What the Bible is concerned about is the spirit in which you hold your wealth. The spirit in which you hold it. How you obtained it. What you do with your wealth. How you treat other people in regard to wealth. So James's concern isn't that you have possessions. His concern is if your possessions possess you. That's what he's ultimately concerned about. In James's day, and certainly our own, the rich were using their money as a way to, to oppress the poor. That these rich, oppressive people, these are the guys who would have a hard time entering into the kingdom of God. They would have a very difficult time seeing themselves through the eye of that needle. Like Jesus' illustration. And James comes right out of the gate casting judgment on these people. I mean, do you catch that? All that is going to befall the rich... Weep and howl, you rich, for the miseries that are coming upon you. The implication with James telling them to howl is actually you're acting like a beast, so you might as well howl like a beast. 
all that you have built up in this life, the garments and the gold and the silver, it's going to be eaten by moths and it's going to rust away, which is a very significant statement because gold doesn't rust. Your gold and silver are going to corrode. They're going to rust. Gold and silver actually doesn't corrode. And I think James knows that. But I think he's making an extra hard point. That it is going to all go away. Their flesh, the flesh of the rich will be eaten like fire. They had fattened themselves up in the day of slaughter. Judgment is coming to these who would oppress God's people. Now it's important for us to understand a little bit of the historical context behind Uh, what's going on here, that James knows and Christians should have known during this time that the destruction of Jerusalem was coming. James, of what we can tell from the Bible, is really the head of the church in Jerusalem. He is functioning as we see that in Acts chapter 15, calling the church together, and James is certainly one of the point men, if not the point man, in the whole area of Jerusalem in regard to the church there. And Jesus had prophesied, if you remember, that the end of Jerusalem is going to come. That it's going to be wiped out. And it would be a terrible scene. And we know from church history that it was absolutely horrific what happened in AD 70. So this is being written in about AD 45. 25 years later in AD 70, Titus comes. He surrounds. He's, the, uh, he's a Roman general. He comes. He surrounds the city of Jerusalem and lays utter waste to the city of Jerusalem. Now... Put this passage in that context. How stupid it would be to be garnering wealth for yourself when you know it is all coming down on you. It is as silly as a cow, a cow being like, mm, I'm going to get slaughtered this afternoon. Let me just eat, 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 eat. Why would you do that? But yet he calls these people out. These ones who are oppressing others these ones who are fattening themselves up when the end, this terrible situation in AD 70, is going to befall them. If we were told that Christ would return in the year 2040 or the year 2050, would we spend our lives amassing wealth? Would we live very different lives if we knew that in our lifetime, for sure, Jesus was going to come, I think we would live very differently. And these men and women knew that the destruction of Jerusalem was going to come. Jesus said, this is going to happen. That some of you are going to see this happen. Yet they fattened themselves up, although the slaughter was not coming. And if you haven't noticed while reading your Bible, we serve a God who loves the oppressed. He loves widows and orphans. He built laws into the Bible concerning widows and orphans. He loves the sojourners. He built laws for the Jews concerning the sojourners, the aliens. He built laws into the Jewish law to protect them. He loves preborn babies. He loves infants. He loves the elderly. And God opposes anybody who would oppose his own. And we've already seen this. Who does God oppose? In James chapter 4, did we not see that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And the tendency for the rich so often, and certainly the rich people in our passage this morning, is that they are going to be lifted up in and of themselves. That they're going to be lifted up in pride as rich people, oppressing other people. And God would surely oppose them. 
Rich people do not tend to be humble people. They tend to be proud. And God opposes them. He opposes those not because they're rich, but because they are rich and proud at the same time. These kinds of people honor themselves. They do not honor the poor. They do not lift up the poor. We've seen this kind of people in the book of James already, like in chapter 2 where he says, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you call your call? So they are proud. They blaspheme the name of God. They're blasphemers. They dishonor not only God, but they dishonor the poor. They dishonor God and they dishonor the ones whom God loves. And back in James chapter 5, he says that they rip off laborers. They rip off their harvesters. Most of you here get a weekly check or you get a bi-weekly check and you budget everything that you pay for with your food and your bills and whatnot. And in our system today, you can even project in the next week or two how much money is going to come in, provided you're with that employer, even if you're sick for a few days. You call out sick and you can still know for most of you, that you're going to get paid for those, day, uh, for those days. But not these people. If they don't work that day, they don't eat that day. Do, do you remember the parable that Jesus tells about the workers in the vineyard? They're all being called in throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, the foreman calls all the workers together and he pays them at the end of the day. And so they didn't get a weekly or bi-weekly check. If they worked that day, they got paid that day. The problem being, there were no human resource departments making sure that the managers and supervisors were acting as they should. And one of the atrocities that rich landowners would commit is that they would hold on to money that the laborer had earned overnight to ensure that the laborer would come back the next day. And so instead of paying him for that day, which was the custom and even biblical law, if you look in Leviticus, if you look in Deuteronomy, there's actually law saying you need to pay them at the end of the day and not hold on to the money. Instead of paying them, they would hold on to the money and force them to come back. And for this culture, that was terrible. Because they worked that day, so they should get paid that afternoon so they could buy food for their family for that night or for the next day. So many thousands and thousands of people literally living from day to day. But what do these rich people do that James talks about here? They didn't even give them their money. They held on to it for themselves. So they didn't just withhold the money overnight. They kept what the laborer earned. Look, Verse 4, it says, they defrauded the people. So what they were doing is they were keeping as much money as they could so they could live in luxury, so they could be self-indulgent, instead of paying the poor what was due to them. I'm sure they put out a little bit of money. You would have to, right, to keep the person coming back day to day a little bit. But what seems to be indicated here is that the corruption of the wealthy collaborating together to let as little money out as possible to keep the poor coming back. And they're so poor and they're so desperate that they have to keep coming back. Seeing as they had no other options, they'd simply have to keep working. Matthew Henry helpfully summarizes the main sins of these rich people in this passage, and I'm summarizing these for you. First, is that they're covetous hoarders. Second, they are oppressing the poor. Third, they are hedonists, that they only live for themselves and for their own pleasure. And fourth, they are persecutors to the death. So how do you think God feels about that kind of person? 
Who does any or all of that? And James says, you just weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Judgment is coming. You notice that he doesn't even offer them the gospel. He doesn't say, believe in Jesus. He doesn't offer them mercy and hope and the chance of forgiveness. Judgment is coming to you. And James says that the evidence that is going to be used against these people in God's court would be their riches. Look at verse 3 again. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So they had hoarded their gold and silver and their clothes and all the rest. They didn't just have plenty for themselves. They had more than enough. And like the parable Jesus tells of a man who says, well, I got all of this grain or whatever, and he goes and builds a, a, bigger, uh, a bigger barn for, their, for his excess. So too were these people. They needed more. They needed more buildings. They needed bigger houses. They needed bigger closets to fit all of their stuff in. And think about that in our own day. How many of us even have a walk-in closet because a normal closet's just simply not big enough? I know some of you men are like, well, my wife's stuff is like, you know, three quarters of this thing, right? She gives you a sliver of the closet. But the reality is, you can't take it with you when you die. But it will be used as evidence against you. Your excess will be used as evidence against you. And in some way, your excess wealth rich people, is apparently used as the fuel to burn their flesh. So you can't take it with you when you die, but it will be used against you to prove you guilty, and it will be used as the fuel for the fire that consumes you. These are the rich oppressors, and this will be your, their doom, and maybe your doom. But second, who are these oppressed? So if these rich people are oppressing the poor, is there a way that we can specifically think about those who are being oppressed by these rich? Look at verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Just a small glimmer, right, of who he's talking about. The ones being oppressed are the righteous people. The one who belongs to Christ. The ones who have trusted and believed in Jesus. The ones being oppressed are not the wicked. The ones being oppressed are the righteous. I think you also get an indication from verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, they're crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So these laborers and these harvesters for James are the righteous ones. They are the ones that the Lord of hosts is listening to. So so these righteous workers have been mistreated. They've been stolen from, not given what they are due. They are the ones who are crying out. More more literally translated, they're shrieking. They are literally shrieking out because of this oppression. And James calls for the righteous not to weep and howl. But what do they do? These righteous call upon the Lord of hosts. So the rich... Weep and howl. The poor, they're shrieking. And these hardworking, righteous Christians who are being oppressed by the rich 
are completely unable to defend themselves, that all they can do is cry out, cry out against their employers, and to cry out to their God, that they're utterly helpless. They have no money to lobby for the defense. Again, no human resource department to implore. And because of this injustice against them, they are likely unable to pay off their debts and sent off to a debtor's prison where they rot and die. And so verse 6 indicates these rich men are literally murdering the poor. Which, if James is being literal here, probably again means that they are going to the poorhouses. They are going to the workhouses in order to pay off the debts that they're accruing. And what an ugly world this would be. But the world today, in many places, has the same sort of ugliness. That there's plenty of injustice all over the place. And when you follow the money, you can see it. Money being made at the expense of unborn babies' lives and their body parts. Money being made at the expense of young girls and boys being sex trafficked. Money being made at the expense of people for slave trade. Slavery is not over. Money talks. All you've got to do is follow it. And the most wicked atrocities can be found at the end of the trail. Friend, the world was this ugly all of these years ago. And the world today, as long as we've sophisticated our way out of these things, the world is still hideous. The difference is, it may one day become much more personal and real and evident in our lives. Again, we feel distance from this passage. But there is a chance, obviously, within our lives where all of this becomes very real to us. But there is good news for the Christian. And that we have to be reminded of that if oppression does come, and that you are oppressed by the rich, and you are discriminated against because you are a Christian, there is good news that you need to be reminded of. James chapter 2, verse 5. You might not have the riches of the world. You might not be powerful. But listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So that's the point. They know you don't have a lot of money. You are being oppressed. And you are a Christian. And the good news is that God has chosen us to be rich in faith with what actually matters. That this life, like we looked at last week, is a vapor, right? Isn't that life a vapor? Like, it's so quick. It ends so quickly. And the good news is that God has chosen the poor in the world, despite being nothing on this earth. Jesus himself had nothing on this earth, did he? Did he have treasure? And God has chosen us to be rich in what actually matters. So you're experiencing oppression maybe one day? And the good news is, As God's chosen one, as a poor person of the world, the richness that matters, the richness of faith has been dispensed to you. And although that time might come someday, when we are the ones who are being oppressed by the world, I don't know, you don't know, but if that time comes, we need to remember in the midst of our own cries that our Lord himself was oppressed, wasn't he? 
that Jesus endured oppression while he was on earth? According to Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. He was treated with contempt. He was acquainted with grief, not esteemed. The word itself is translated oppressed and afflicted. But what? He opened not his mouth. Brothers and sisters, the Lord that you are following, the one who called you to take up your cross and follow after him, he was oppressed and afflicted. What makes you think anything else would happen to you? The simple idea that you have taken up a cross to follow him indicates that you very may well be oppressed and afflicted too. Like if you look at history and the apostles and what happened to them, boiled, hung upside down, the martyrs throughout history, read Fox's book of martyrs and read all that has happened to so many Christians, to take up your cross and to follow after Jesus would seem to indicate there's a pretty good chance I'm going to be nailed to this thing. But just as Christ would look to his Father for comfort and assurance, we also have our God to look to in times of oppression. Did you notice that in verse 4? The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's an interesting way of putting it. The ears of the Lord of hosts. That's what we call an anthropomorphism. That we are... Uh, ascribing a human element like an ear to God because God doesn't have ears. The the Father doesn't have ears. Don't think of a big jolly Santa Claus when you think about God. Um, He is the Father, but He does not have ears. The Spirit does not have ears. Jesus would have glorified ears. But God does not have ears. And so James is not describing for us the anatomy of God. He is, however, describing that the Lord of hosts Here's our cries. And as we've noted before, James has a very strong, wonderful Old Testament flavor about him. And the Lord of hosts is used many times in the Old Testament. But this usage by James is the only time in the New Testament, except for one other spot where Paul quotes the Old Testament. So really, this is the only explicit personal reference to the Lord of hosts in the New Testament. And my friend, the Lord of hosts hears. He hears the cries of his people. He hears the cries of the oppressed. And as the Lord of hosts, he has chosen us to be part of his kingdom, to be rich in faith and heirs of his kingdom. And he will, in fact, act on our behalf. James makes it clear that those who are oppressed are in no way, they're not able to fight for themselves. He says that although they have not been heard by their oppressors, someone far greater has heard their cries. So these oppressors are hearing the shrieks of the people and God is hearing their cries. So often in the Old Testament, when the Lord of hosts is used, it's used for the when when the people are in absolute desperation, when they had no protection, when the enemies were surrounding their camp or where they were living. You remember David in the Psalms, he is constantly crying out to the Lord of hosts over and over. Or like the Jews in Egypt for 400 years, God heard their cries. And what we know about God in seasons of oppression must be remembered. You have to remember who God is. When you're being oppressed, you remember who He is. He is the Lord of hosts. Now, who are these hosts? Over whom or what is God the Lord over? Listen again to Matthew Henry. The Lord of hosts 
who has all ranks of beings and creatures at his disposal, and who sets all in their several places, hears the oppressed when they cry to reason of the cruelty or injustice of the oppressor. And he will give orders to some of those hosts that are under him. Here they are. Angels, devils, storms, distems, or the like. To avenge the wrongs done to those who are dealt with unrighteously or unmercifully. Do you believe that God protects you? Do you believe that the Lord of hosts will hear your cries when you're oppressed? Like, Do you believe that? The Lord of hosts is able to protect you. And he hears your cries, although not a soul in the world might. The Lord of hosts hears your cries, Christian. He hears you. It seems to me that although you and I, again, may not be oppressed in this current day, that a day might come where the fact that we trust and believe the Lord of hosts may become one of the most sweetest truths that we hold to. So maybe not today, but maybe 20 years from now, when you hear the the name of God, the Lord of hosts, it just sounds like honey to you. It sounds beautiful and sweet and good. Knowing that our God, despite the oppressors, will hear our cries and he will answer And what he'll do as the Lord of hosts is dispatch his hosts to protect you. The reality is that the world is not growing in friendliness to the church. All of the passages that sound like James's passage this morning, although distant to us now, may very well begin to ring far more true than it does right now. So again, although this sermon may not be that relevant in some sense, it is relevant. Consider it as a preparatory sermon. Because what if that day comes when the oppression's real, when the only thing that you can do is to cry out to the Lord of hosts and depend on Him alone? This is a compelling passage. I have to admit, when I first came to it, I had absolutely no idea how really to take it. It did have that distance to me. But as I've studied it, and as we've gone through it this morning, my prayer is that God would show us and apply it to us, and lodge it deep within our hearts, that we would remember this text when we feel the heat of persecution warming up, that we would remember who we are as God's children, who have the opportunity to call out to the Lord of hosts, and that because of Him, we would endure together. Let's pray.